Would you please turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's hear it as such. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Our great God, we pray that you would help us to understand and to know your word. We pray that you would help us to store it up in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus, we are told in chapter 9, verse 51, that he had set his face to go to Jerusalem And he is on his way there. And from the other gospel accounts, we understand that he has been healing. He has been teaching. He has been speaking. And here is an individual who has a question. A question comes from the crowd. I don't know about you, but I've I've often seen uh, conferences and uh, times when uh, there are answer question answer. There are questions and answers after a conference, I never really like them. This is op- an opportunity for the odd questions to be asked. I remember once when we had uh, Dr. Tarek Thomas up here uh, into the Berkshires. We were in Lee and, and uh, we had a conference on Reformed theology and, and uh, he was to speak on the subject of what is the Reformed faith. And it was, it was wonderful. There were a number of strangers there. It was in uh, the Black Swan Hotel in, in their conference room and um, after the serv- after the, the, the his explanation of what the Reformed faith was, uh, he then opened up the floor to questions. And inevitably, two individual strangers who I did not know asked their go-to questions: um, Is God done with the Jews? And and uh, and when will Christ return? Well, who is uh, the answer? Who is to know with 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 simplicity the answer to those questions? Um, and his answer was no, and I don't know. And that was it. He moved on to the next question. I thought that was brilliant, the way that he answered those questions. Uh, those are typically those kinds of questions that come from people who have a particular bully pulpit and or a theological uh, 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 subject that they usually will beat someone over the head with 
And obviously they've studied on it. Uh, they know a great deal. They can argue their way around their question and give you an answer. And in asking the question, they are not really asking for an answer. They are asking for an opportunity, in fact, to explain to you what the answer is. Well, that's what this uh, individual is doing, or at least that's my understanding. Uh, this person may be asking with explicit, with, with real sincerity, Lord, in light of the things that you have said, in light of the, the, the minuscule following that you have, can any great number be saved? Will the number of those who are saved be very small? Perhaps this is a question asked in sincerity, or perhaps it's a question asked from a position that really there's a speculative understanding that they are searching for and they have no right to. Christ doesn't really answer the question directly. I think that he gets around to it indirectly by the time he reaches the end, and he speaks in verse 30, of a great host coming from the east and the west and the north and the south who recline at the table and uh, in, the, in the kingdom of God. The word of God answers this question indirectly for us in many other ways. Abraham was told that his seed, his believing seed, Romans makes the connection for us that all those who are of Abraham are those who are of the faith. That includes you and me. And he he told Abraham, there will be a great nation drawn from your seed. Almost innumerable, uh, as it were, as the sands uh, by the shore. There are many other instances where we see in Revelation a great host without number standing before the, the throne of God and praising and glorifying the eternal Son of God. And yet we also know that Jesus has said it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than it is to enter the kingdom of God. We also know that there are few, few who follow Jesus by our own experience of what we see, even of our own experience as a small church. Well, that question is not really answered for us explicitly. It is not given to us to know. But Christ doesn't directly answer the question. It's not given to men to know the precise number The numbers within Revelation are figurative of the 144,000, not literal in that sense, but they are analogous of a great number of people who stand before the Lord in the last great day. I wonder whether or not the, 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 the question is geared toward the idea that in some way God is obligated to be merciful and therefore God should up the number. God is not obligated to show mercy, nor in his sovereignty over his creation is he to be questioned. The question implies a greater concern for the plight of man than the suffering of the Son of Man in effecting the grace that he will offer to undeserving sinners. Oftentimes, dear friends, we ask the wrong questions. We ask from our perspective and not from the Lord's. And we approach theology often that way, and we ought not to. We have to check our theology by rather by the mind of God, which the Lord himself can give to us as we increase in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even then, we must acknowledge that there are speculations that we must avoid, for we are approaching the mysterious, we are approaching the sovereign, the eternal, things which we do not understand. And we must open our hands in question willing that God would leave us 
without a full understanding of all that he himself knows. Perhaps this individual even has a desire to limit the entrance of individuals, make Christianity an exclusive religion. Maybe it's a good thing in their mind as they ask this question that, in fact, heaven seems to be open only to a few rather than to a great many. And there are people that would do that, those who would limit the the numbers of those who are to enter the kingdom of God to that literal number of 144,000, not not realizing nor acknowledging that that is a figurative number, of a, a compound of 12, which is of the completion of the 12 tribes of Israel and a fullness of all that God I- intends should stand before him on the last great day. There are those who would limit the kingdom of God to those who have spoken in tongues, those who would limit the kingdom of God to those who have practiced some specific spiritual gift or of, or of a particular ethnicity. And we must make certain that we do not hold to such views. And perhaps this person is asking the question based upon that idea. But the Lord Jesus simply answers by giving him, him an, an, an imperative. Strive to enter through the narrow door. He speaks to that individual who is asking about the grander scheme of God's kingdom and about others and about Uh, other persons and how many will be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's a similar answer to the question that's asked at the beginning of chapter 13 in verse 1 and 2. There is an individual there, a number of people who point out that they're uh, the Galileans, uh, their their blood was mixed when Pilate had uh, mixed their blood with the sacrifices by putting them to death. These these pious, uh, godly people who had come with sacrifices and Pilate had killed. And Jesus said, do you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I think it's extraordinary the way that the Lord turns people who think they know the answers to the questions. He turns them on their head by saying, you, you must make certain of your eternal standing. You must make, check your, your, uh, your, your standing before the Lord and whether or not you're part of the kingdom of God that you speak and say that you know so much about. There's a series of warnings here. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. When the master shuts the door of the house, the kingdom of God is likened to a house. People will stand outside and knock, but the Lord will not know them. It's nothing less than what Jesus in Matthew's gospel speaks of in the last day and when the Lord will, 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 will descend and will come with his people and the, the books will be opened and the great judgment of, of, of the division of humanity will occur and, and the goats will go on one side and the sheep will be on the other. And he will say to the goats, you must depart from me. And he will consign them out into the utter darkness and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as he consigns them to that fate, they will protest and say, Lord, we have done great things in your name. There is the place of protest. And here it seems that he is referencing that particular place and time. There are then those who will say, 
We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But the Lord God here is likened to a great master of a house. He is the master. He is the creator of all things. And the world and all that he has made is in his hands. But there is a particular place, this heavenly Jerusalem, the Zion, the place of God's own dwelling, heaven. The new heavens and the new earth, new Jerusalem, where Jesus will eternally dwell, the eternal Son of God in flesh. And he will be worshipped. And he is the master who shuts the door and none may open. They will protest with exclamations of what they've done for God, a proclamation of righteousness, a a, a, a proclamation of fidelity, of service, of privileged positions, of offerings to the church, extraordinary acts of service, or of penance, giving up of food or other liberties during seasons of Lent or of religious seasons of fastings, of self-sacrifices, but God will command their departure. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. I do not know where you are from. And that... That troubles us. Doesn't God know all things? Doesn't God know all whom he has made? Is there anyone outside of the knowledge of God? Is there any individual that God does not intimately know as their creator? Surely that is the truth. And yet there is a willing, there is a willingness in the part of God to shut out from his memory the wicked. He does not know them. Love them with a covenantal love. He does not intimately, is not intimately aware of them as a friend and of a child. God will command their departure. They will be forcefully corralled into a place of conscious sight of heaven, the fathers and the prophets of faith and their enjoyment in God and sitting at the table of reclining at the table of God's kingdom. Very much like the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. They will be conscious of what they have rejected. And where they are, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not something that is short nor brief. This is not an activity which is only a past participle, but rather it is an ongoing infinitive. It is a continuing action of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What are those indicative of weeping over what was lost, weeping over what could have been, weeping over what they had forsaken, weeping over what they had not ever taken grasp of, gnashing of teeth and anger and rebellion against God, for the rebellion of the wicked never ceases, even under the duress and pain of hell. And thus God is right in his judgment. God is true in his knowledge of the wicked. There's a summary, I think, lastly, of the citizens of the kingdom of God, not lastly in our sermon, but lastly in regard to exposition, exposition of the text before we make a brief, uh, a brief application. From the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south, and even at later times, there will be many who will come. There will be many who will come. Jewish Non-Jewish, Gentile persons, all reclining together at the king, at, at the king's table. 
And even those who come later, those who come last, will be first. And those who have come first will be last. Meaning there are those who will faithfully serve the Lord, who will be extraordinary in their service to God, who will extraordinarily be faithful. They will be found amongst the least or the last. And those who had come first, to use Peter's words, will barely, as if through fire, enter into the kingdom of God. Well, there are three things that we should take by way of application from the text this morning. The first of which is simply this. The most important question is whether or not you have forsaken sin and the world and self and have come to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the single most important question in all the world. That's the single most important question you will ever be asked. Have you forsaken sin? Have you forsaken the world? Have you forsaken yourself and come in faith? and trust, and with repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will make a particular theological contention or position or belief essential to their existence in the church. I refuse to participate in the church unless you believe this. Or they come to the church, they participate in membership, and this becomes their bully pulpit. This is the one thing they want to make certain that everyone else believes. But fundamentally more important than any of that, more important than any system of doctrine, more, one, more important than any other singular thing is this fundamental question. Have you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you gone to God privately and made certain to tell him of the same thing? Conversion is not simply something that, that, that just, or, or, or a profession of faith is not simply that something that simply happens and now one day we are, we are living for the Lord. We must tell the Lord. We must submit to the Lord physically, verbally. We must make certain that we come to the Lord who has privately and through his sovereign work converted us, but we must respond in faith and repentance. Repentance is not a one-time act, but a daily discipline of the maturing believer who is being transformed into the image of Christ. And that is in this context and throughout the following chapters as well, but also in the immediacy of the earlier chapter 13, repentance is commanded repeatedly. Repeatedly. Repentance is a comforting discipline to the believer because we are comforted by the knowledge that God encourages our bold approach and promises that he will in no wise cast out those who come to him in faith. All those who in sincerity and for God's name and for God's glory and for their personal sanctification and pardon and forgiveness to turn from sin, to seek to put it to death and ask forgiveness from the Lord. That's what repentance involves. It's, it's not the only means. It is the only means of forgiveness and and it is the only healing that is present for our greatest affliction. He is calling us to much more than that when he says in verse <clears throat> 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. What is he saying? Well, it's, it's similar, I think, to 1 Timothy 4, 7 and following. Train yourself for godliness. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so he speaks of striving and setting our hope upon God and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Being a Christian does not stop simply with the day that we confess faith in Jesus Christ. The rest of life is a principled pursuit and a pathway of obedience toward the living God. I think it's much more than that, too. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, the Lord Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. To strive to enter through the narrow gate is to simply grasp hold of Jesus Christ by faith. To cling to him knowing that he is the only savior of mankind. He is the savior of our souls. He has come that he might make an offering for sin. He was he offered himself on the cross. His blood poured out a covering for sin for us if we believe and trust in him. Strive to enter the narrow gate. Cling to Jesus Christ from the moment of your conversion until the day of your death. And always and only plead Jesus Christ. Don't plead your own merit. Don't say that, well, Jesus, you, you spoke in our streets. And don't say, Jesus, I, I, I ate supper with you. Lord Jesus, I went to church countless times. And I, I know the greatest celebrities in the church of Jesus Christ. The biggest and the best preachers. And I can break down a sermon and I can... I've loved my neighbor and I've done the best thing for all the people on my street. Don't plead those meritorious things. Rather, plead the meritorious blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You must cling to Him. He must be everything to you. He must be your soul's delight. He must be the constant source of mercy and of grace to you. The one to whom you constantly rely. The one with whom you are in constant communication with. The narrow gate is difficult to find, but it is there. It must be searched for. We must ask directions and receive them from the Word of God and from brothers and sisters who have found their way to Christ or rather have been found by Christ. We must listen to good counsel and advice. We must ask those who have found the narrow gate to the way to go. We must submit to God's standards and adhere to his word and hold to his will and aim for his glory and not our own. We must cling to his righteousness. It can be painful entering through the narrow gate, can't it? It can be very painful. We will lose relationships. We will weep as we see our loved ones whom we wish knew the Lord Jesus Christ passing from this earth, not knowing, uncertain as to their eternal state, regretful that we had said something more, or wishing that we had been more gifted with our oratory, but knowing that the Spirit of God is able to turn our words into wise counsel 
knowing that the Spirit of God blows wherein, like the wind wherever he will, or moves wherever he will. And he will save all those whom God is determined will be saved, all those for whom Jesus died. There are boundaries for the believer. The boundaries are the word of God. The gate is very narrow. We must enter through the word. We must enter through the living word. It takes much hard effort. It's counter-natural. We must fight against every tendency within ourselves to follow the easier path and, and, and must stay on the dangerous paths of faith, even if it requires, as we prayed earlier, loss of home, the burning down of our resources, the loss of every possible relationship and isolation, poverty itself. Following Jesus is dangerous. Requires faith in things unseen. An understanding and a trust of what God has said will occur, that it will indeed occur. Repentance within ourselves of all that is natural to us and all that seems attractive and all that seems so, so satisfying. It requires self-denial, even leaving behind our families and friends if we must. We must enter through the narrow door. It is narrow, I think, for three reasons. It's narrow so that you cannot get through with your sins. You must forsake them. You can't carry them with you. The way is narrow. You must hold to Jesus Christ and not cling to those besetting sins. It's narrow because our God is a jealous God, and he will entertain no other love, no other commitment, no other faith in some other thing, no other complaint or meritorious claims, only Jesus for our God is a jealous God. Thirdly, it is narrow because of God's narrowing sovereignty over salvation. He will redeem all those whom he is pleased to save, and none others. None other. And so we must make every effort. Interestingly, Jesus could have said, I will save all those whom my Father has given to me. Don't worry. I'll make certain that you're in the kingdom. He doesn't do that. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. In that striving in and of itself, there is proof, there is assurance, there is, there is a reasonable assurance that we have hope in Jesus Christ. Make every effort, forsake all else, lay aside anything that would prohibit you, anything that would inhibit your progress, lay aside anything that would in any way take away from your following Jesus Christ. Uh, but for the wicked... We tend to think of wickedness in re regard to degrees of sin rather than in an unwillingness to acknowledge and repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We, we think and we measure wickedness by whether or not an individual has committed heinous and horrible and public and scandalous sins. And yet we, we fail to recognize that wickedness is supremely, more than anything else, a rejection of God and of his Son. A refusal to believe and to forsake and turn away from personal sins. That is supremely the most wicked thing a human could ever do. More than murder, more than lying, more than idolatry, to refuse God's offer of Jesus Christ. 
to refuse to believe, to refuse to forsake sin and embrace Christ in his righteousness. Supremely, there is no more heinous sin in all the earth. But even that may be forgiven if you would turn this very day in responding to the grace of God and the promise of his grace through his son, Jesus Christ, even to the worst of sinners, there is that promise sincerely and freely made to all. Come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and believe. Come to Jesus and forsake sin. Come to Jesus and repent and turn away from this world. For the wicked, there is everlasting duration of punishment and suffering, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a conscious and eternal existence where the worm does not cease nor are the fires ever quenched. Repeatedly throughout Scripture, we are told that the fires never, never go out. I'll tell you, it's, I think it would be a boon to unbelievers from a philosophical sense. It would be a great boon to an unbeliever to, the, to, to believe in the idea that at the end of all things, when God judges me, I will simply cease to be. I believe clearly in Scripture that we are told that as the believer enjoys the eternal benefits of life, so too the unbeliever will undergo the eternal condemnation and death of soul. But many will never consider this. And that's where we are in this morning's sermon. The second point, many will not think about God and about their sins or about the Savior until it is too late first point was the most important question is whether or not we have forsaken the world, sin, and self, and have come to believe in Jesus Christ. The second observation from this text is many will not think about God. Many will not think about their sins. Many will not think about the Savior until it is too late. Many will not consider hell nor believe until it is too late. In Matthew 25, verses 10 through 12, there is a story about the ten virgins Five trimmed their lamps in preparedness, anticipation of the return of the bridegroom. And five are unprepared. They're not ready for the bridegroom to come. And they knock on the door in the last day. And he refuses to open it. But those who are prepared are inside. Those who are not prepared are on the outside. Those who are outside will be excluded and cast out. In like Language here in this passage, there are those who will complain, who will, who will scream, who will make protest and say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. They will knock on the door and say, Lord, open to us. But they will be excluded. They will be cast out. But why? why? How is God just in casting out the wicked? I think the answer is told in their protest. What do they protest? Lord, let us in. On the basis of what? We know you. We know your son. No, they do not protest that. Lord, let us in. There is a presumption, an assumption that God must let them in, but God will not. They then protest and say, we ate dinner with you. We ate, in, we ate food at your table. And you spoke in our streets. 
Again, a presumption and an assumption that because God was near and because they in some seemingly external way walked in the religious circles where they were in close proximity to God, that therefore they have a right and God has an obligation to let them in. God is under no such obligation. Again, remember what God says, the master of the house. What does he say to them? I do not know you and I do not know where you are from. You see, here is a rejection of them because there is no covenantal obligations here. There is no covenantal connection through the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not believed. There is no faith. They have not repented of their sins. They are still grasping their sins and they are trying to enter, but the way is narrow and they cannot. They've forsaken nothing. They don't say, I've forsaken sin. I've embraced your son. I've accepted the Messiah. He is my Savior. No, they don't do that. Perhaps this passage troubles you this morning as a believer. You believed and you turned to Christ. What will you protest on the last great day? What will you say? What will your answer be if the Lord were to ask you? And of course, he will not ask you because he knows you. He knows those who are his. But what if he were to ask you, upon what basis do you come forth? Upon what basis should I permit you entrance into the house of God? What will you say? I know what many of you will say. I claim the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his blood, and nothing else. And that's the only answer that we can give. I have forsaken the world. I have forsaken my sin. And I have embraced Jesus Christ. There is no hope for me except you look at him. I wear robes of righteousness, of white righteousness and holiness even now because the Lord Jesus Christ has clothed me in his righteousness. My sins have been imputed to him and his righteousness has been imputed to me. If that is true of you today, you have indeed thought about your eternal state. And you have the only protest that anyone can ever give to an inviting God. Thankfully, you will not need to make that protest because the Lord has died for those who are his and he knows those who are his. These, though, in this story, in this in this explanation will be cast out because they themselves have been cast out, thrown out of the kingdom of God. Second Thessalonians 2 in another eschatological passage, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Here it is. There's an individual right here. Perfect illustration. We ate dinner with you. You walked in our streets. You taught me. And yet they don't make the claim. Oh, Lord God, I love the truth. I love the truth. I love your word. I love what you say. I love what you've shown me to be true. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I love him because he first loved me. And although I am weak and foolish, nonetheless, he is my savior. God refuses intimacy with any who would enter any other way. God refuses intimacy. And I believe he is grieved and angered. Enraged against those who have adopted some nonsensical, universalistic sort of approach. That there are many pathways to God. No, there is only one. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the door, he says. I am the door. Jesus is the door through whom we must enter. It is his testimony that will validate the life and not the stamp of some man-made extraordinary self-glorifying works. Your name is on a building or who knows what it is. All judgment is given into Jesus' hands. He has the keys, as he says in his gospel. He who would call all sinners to himself will one day shut the door and cast all who are wicked, who have refused him, who have condemned themselves away from himself. God is more pleased with a life of principles yearned for, worked toward obedience of his will and of clinging to Jesus Christ in weakness and in great need than empty statements and pleadings of his lordship or enthusiasm, passion, or emotion, tongues in every sort of language, Even the tongues of angels, Paul says. Prophetic anointings or preachings or spectacular supernatural ministries, words of knowledge, spoken mysteries, revelatory gifts, secret messages in the night, new dispensations of the Spirit of God, demonic conquering, casting out of power, office holding, card carrying, members of churches who do not know Jesus Christ. You must enter through the narrow door. The narrow door is Jesus Christ, our Savior. There is no other. Thirdly and finally, all those who know Christ will be saved. That's the wonderful thing. Regardless of their ethnicity or position or placement in time, whether they come first or last, whether they are of Gentile persuasion or or they are Jewish, whether they come from the west or or from the east or from the north or from the south, regardless of where they come from, that alone is, is not vital, but rather whether or not they know Jesus. And you do know Jesus, don't you, this morning? You know him. There's no other. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved, but you know Jesus. You've trusted in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. At the end of the day, despite, uh, I encourage you even right now to take your eyes off yourself and to look at Jesus by faith and think, do I believe in him? Have I really forsaken the world? Am I trying, striving day by day to put sin to death? Am I striving to leave behind sin and to embrace Jesus Christ in faith? And despite my many failings, failings, my untold numbers of failings, I know there's no hope for me apart from Jesus Christ and that he's the only door. If you can say that, you know, he knows you. John 10:14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Not many ways, not many doors, not many mental or philosophical or psychological pursuits or avenues. One door, one way, one sheep, one flock, one shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they know me. 
I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 John 4.19 We love Him because He first loved us. A glorious thing that we have been we have received a Savior who has prepared everything needful that we might be saved, who has provided a way and himself says, I am the door. Come to me, all you who will labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is such a Savior. Only do not, do not forsake Only do not fail to hear him this day, for today is the day of salvation. You must hear, you must receive, you may not make any claims about yourself anymore, but you must turn to Christ. You must believe in him, acknowledge that he is the door, the great shepherd, that he is creating a people for himself, and you must turn to him in faith and forsake all your sins. Leave them behind. They will only prohibit you from going through the narrow door. Leave them, forsake them, and come to Jesus. And every day as believers, may God enable us to forsake our sins, die unto ourselves, and follow Jesus. Every day. Let's pray. My Lord and our God, we pray that you would help us. You set before our eyes this morning the very many Methods, means, protests of the wicked. Many of us, oh God, all of us, at some point were numbered amongst the wicked, even though you had elected us unto everlasting life. At some point we were opposed to you. We had not yet believed. We were not yet justified. And yet you, our gracious God, had determined that you would save us. Our names had been written in your book. And in the course of human history, at some point, you used some means, some instrument, but more than anything, the Holy Spirit of God came and replaced our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And we passed out of death and into life. Lord God, we thank you for the salvation that we have received. Help us to believe. Our faith is often weak. And we judge whether or not we are a believer by our progress in the Christian life. But this is not right. Our judgment as to whether or not we are Christians depends utterly upon what we think of the Lord Jesus Christ and whether or not we have believed in him, embracing him by faith, believing and trusting in him alone, forsaking all else. Not that our eternal salvation depends upon the works of our faith and repentance, rather but that faith and repentance are the instruments by, that you have given to us by which we receive Christ. For our salvation is a gift entirely of grace. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and even that is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And so we cannot boast except in Jesus Christ. And oh, we boast in him today. He is a wonderful Savior, a wonderful counselor of our souls. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Rose of Sharon. He is the beautiful and eternal and all-pleasing, well-beloved Son of God. He is the Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. 
and we look unto him and we would not enter through any other door but through Jesus. Oh, help us, O oh God, that Jesus would come to mean much more to us. Grant us a teachable spirit that in walking in humility we may pay attention to your warnings and hear them, even as believers, and say, Oh, wayward soul, Lord God, keep my feet from wandering from the path, the narrow path of life. Bring me back. Keep me ever walking forward in Christ Jesus. Keep me from being conformed to the world. Keep me from desiring the things of the world more than I desire Jesus Christ. We thank you for your shed blood. We thank you for the cleansing through the Holy Spirit of God from all sin. We anticipate, we long for, our single highest and greatest hope is that we will stand before you without blemish, spotless, like the Lamb of God. When Christ appears amongst his people with our salvation in his hands. Oh, Lord God, we give thanks for what we have already received, the salvation in which we are already immersed, which we have already benefited from. But there is so much eye has not seen nor ear heard what you have in store for us. Lord, help us to anticipate, to look forward to and eagerly seek to be present with the Lord, to be always in the Lord. We ask, Lord, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.